Acts chapter 10 brings up to the early church a matter of church policy. Now it's funny that we talk about church policy in the book of Acts because the church at this time really had no policies. It was refreshing, and it is refreshing, to read the book of Acts and find a church that really had no pastors, had no Bible, really, had no articles of incorporation. It was just a mess. It was a wonderful mess. And it was all God's fault. Because He was the one that poured out His Spirit so that 3,000 people and then 5,000 people came to know Him. And all they had was Jesus. That's all. They knew they were liberated. And the church did go through some rocky times and the church did develop. And it did go from very simple and in many ways very chaotic times to very organized times. And church government is organized through the Bible. There really is no one form of church government all the way through the New Testament. It varied. It grew. And there came times that they had to establish principles and policies. Now, policies weren't rules or regulations like the Old Testament law. They were simply policies to govern the behavior of those people that called themselves Christians and joined the church, joined the body of believers. Acts chapter 10 is an incident that will kind of snowball through several chapters in this book. And it will raise one basic question, and that is, who has the right to belong to the church? Who can join the church? Can anybody join the church? Or is it just restricted to Jewish people who believe in the Old Testament law, have kept the right of circumcision, and keep kosher? That was early church belief at the very beginning. And God is going to break them from that mold as they have to answer this question. And so chapter 10 is really a pivotal chapter. And it's going to cause a lot of waves until the issue is settled in Acts chapter 15. Again, uh, the main actor in this chapter is Peter. And as you can see, so far in Acts, Peter occupies center stage. Paul really isn't center stage until later on where he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. What's interesting is in this chapter, Peter unlocks the door of faith and salvation to the Gentiles. Jesus said, I give to you disciples the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And already Peter has opened a door of faith to the Jews at Pentecost, to the Samaritans in chapter 8. And now he will open the door of faith to allow a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, I mean not just an Ethiopian eunuch or a Samaritan, I mean full-blown Gentile. This is the first time where a Gentile enters the church. And Peter is the one that God uses to do it. When we read the book of Acts, it seems like it goes pretty quickly and it's in quick chronological order. But you need to understand that chapter 10 is probably at least 10 years after the day of Pentecost. Ten years have elapsed and the church has grown. There was persecution in Jerusalem after that time at Pentecost. The persecution erupted so that many people were scattered abroad throughout other parts of Judea, even to Samaria. But at this point in the church, at least for a little while, in other parts of Judea, even Jerusalem, there is peace. And I refer you back to chapter 9 in verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea 
Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now, why is it that on one hand we have a church that was very persecuted and then all of a sudden the church is at peace? Because the chief persecutor of the church has been saved. The guy who caused all the ruckus in the first place, Saul of Tarsus, has been converted. He's now a Christian. And that cools things down for quite a while. In fact, most of his Jewish brethren in Jerusalem can't figure out how Saul of Tarsus, this great rabbi, has now become one of them. But the church is now enjoying peace to all of these regions. Ten years have happened. Ten years have gone by from Pentecost to this chapter. Now Jesus told His disciples something very important. The very end of the book of Matthew, where Jesus got His disciples together before He ascended up into heaven, He told them to go somewhere and preach the Gospel. Where did He tell them to go? All of the world. And preach the Gospel to every creature, every person. At the very beginning of the book of Acts, we have Jesus again gathered with His disciples, probably for a meeting just like Matthew 28. And He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then finally the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, they've been hanging out in Jerusalem for a long time. And yes, the persecution has brought the Gospel to Judea, and a little bit of Samaria, and just a trickle in Galilee. But so far, the Gospel has stayed within the Jewish state. It hasn't really gone beyond the boundaries of Israel. And yet Jesus told them to go into all the world. Part of the problem was a bias. A bias that said, to be saved, you have to be a Jew. Yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but Jesus spoke and preached the Gospel to the Jews and the early church was under the impression that if you want to come to be a Christian, you must first keep the laws of Moses and be circumcised. And In, in Acts chapter 15, there's a huge argument that takes place between these two groups of people. Some say you have to be a Jew to be saved. The other people say, no, you don't. It's totally by grace. Peter himself had problems and he was prejudiced, although he probably wouldn't have admitted it. We're going to see a trickle of it here. He had deeply ingrained traditional values. And folks, traditional values are hard to shake. Even when you come to the Lord, when you know that a tradition isn't right, it's just tough to get rid of it. Because it becomes a part of you. Those traditions make certain activities come very natural and second nature to you, and it's hard to just cut them off. Peter was no exception. He had deep convictions. And yet in Acts chapter 10, God will challenge Peter to break through the barriers, the prejudice, and let God love other people besides people like himself. You know, it's funny. We naturally, men and women by nature, tend to have an aversion to people who are not like us. Whether that means racially, economically, language-wise, even male and female. We have a real problem getting along with people who aren't just like us. 
And sometimes it's hard for us to believe that God loves other people as much as He loves me. God should show favor to me. We often, when we're in a real troublesome spot, a real trial, we say, God, if you love me, how could you let this happen to me? Yet we never question that when bad things happen to other people besides us. It's just us. Now, so far, the early church, as we said, has been Jewish. And it's important that you recognize that fact. Jesus, when he was on earth, had his ministry almost totally to the Jews. He was in one area of northern Israel up by Tyre and Sidon and a woman came to him who had a disease and she wanted to be healed. And Jesus said in response to this Gentile woman, it's not fitting to give the children's bread to the little puppy dogs. She said, true, Lord, but even the the little puppy dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And she was really pushing with her faith. Hey, Lord, I'll take anything I can get, even leftovers. Even if you've got a little healing leftover, I'll take it. Anything. Jesus said, you've got faith, and she was healed. Jesus commissioned his disciples to go to the lost tribes of Israel. That is, the Jewish people who were lost in sin apart from Christ. Go to them. Preach the gospel to them. Jesus told the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria, we know what we worship because salvation is of the Jews. And the gospel was primarily preached to the Jews. The apostles were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. And the early church sprung from Judaism. And they didn't worship in places called churches. They worshiped in synagogues. They still went to the temple. Ten years after Pentecost, the Jewish Christians still go to the synagogue, still go to the temple, and still maintain hours of prayer according to Jewish law and tradition. And so it's a real breakthrough. And it's going to cause quite a lot of waves to see a Gentile come in to the church. But it's inevitable that this would come up because the church is now scattered to other parts where other peoples live, other Gentiles live. And because they've been scattered, the Jews are going to make contact with heathens. And it's only a matter of time where they ask this question, who can really be allowed in the church and under what stipulation can they be allowed? And uh, throughout chapter 11, and especially chapter 15, this incident is going to rock the boat. And that's wonderful. There are some people's religious boats that ought to be rocked. In fact, there are some people's religious boats that ought to be sunk. Because, you know, nothing can change. Hey, we've always done it this way. This is the way I've been brought up. And no matter what anyone says, in fact, to some people, no matter what the Scripture says, this is the way it always was, this is the way it's going to be. And those kind of boats, folks, need to be sunk. And this boat definitely needs to be rocked because the early church is getting a little hard, a little isolated, a little into themselves, very um, elitist, if you will. And so God has to change that thinking. Why did this happen? Well... In the Old Testament, there is a doctrine of election that the Jews had twisted to mean favoritism. Because God spoke to one man by the name of Abraham, and because Abraham's obedience, Abraham went to the land of Israel, and through him the great nation of the Jews appeared. 
And all of the Jews look back to Father Abraham. And we are a select chosen group of people. We're God's chosen. What they failed to remember is that God gave a promise to Abraham that through that man, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. Not just Jewish people. They failed to recognize that. They failed to recognize the promises of God that in the end times, all of the nations of the world would flow up into the house of the Lord at Mount Zion and worship the Messiah. They were becoming very elitist and they looked to themselves as being the chosen favored people. And in the New Testament, God has no favorites. And Peter has to learn this lesson. He's a good Jewish boy. Believing that he's one of the chosen People of God, the favored people. And he's going to realize here that God can love people that are different than him. And God can choose anyone in the world who will but call upon the name of the Lord. And so all this racial pride has to be overcome. You realize in the New Testament, even in the latter end of the Old Testament, that Jewish people, now this isn't in the law, but just it developed because of this twisting of the doctrine of election that certain real radical Jewish people called non-Jewish people, Gentiles, dogs. Gentile dogs. A doctrine developed, again, it's not from the Scripture, but part of their tradition, that God created Gentiles for the sole purpose to kindle the fires of hell. Some strict rabbis recited a prayer that was written in the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud. And these Jewish rabbis, these men would wake up in the morning and they'd say, God, thank you that I am not a Gentile, that I am not a slave, and that I am not a woman. Gentiles, slaves, and women, in their opinions, were all placed on the same abhorrent level. That's the background that Peter came from. Whether he adhered to all of those teachings or not, that's deeply ingrained within him. And Peter needs to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we read, there was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian regiment. A devout man, one who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw, a, uh, saw clearly a vision. An angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, and when he observed him, he was afraid, and you would be too. He said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea, he will, let, he will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. And so when he had explained all of these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and they drew near to the city, Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, 12 noon. He became very hungry, and he wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven opened, and an object like a great sheet, bound at the four corners, descending to him, and let down to the earth. 
In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air, all sorts of unkosher foods. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times. That cracks me up. He struck out all three times. The ball came over the bat and he just missed it all three times. The object was taken up into heaven again. Now it says that there was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius. If you've ever been to Israel, one of the first stops we take people to is a place called Caesarea by the sea. It's right up the coast on the Mediterranean Sea in southern Israel. It was named Caesarea after Caesar Augustus. And Herod the Great built this incredible city 2,000 years ago in which, in a place where there is no natural inlet, he built out a huge, fabulous harbor. In fact, today you can see the remains of the harbor. And Herod the Great 2,000 years ago, most people don't recognize this, but he invented a way to pour cement and have it dry in the ocean 2,000 years ago. And you can see the cement casts from 2,000 years ago put there by Herod the Great. He was a genius. And he made this place beautiful. Caesarea became the central control, the command central for all of the Roman government in Israel. It was the administrative capital. It was the place where the procurator lived. Pontius Pilate made his home there. But it was also a place that the Jews hated because it was the capital of their administration. It's sort of like the Iraqis despising America for being in Saudi Arabia because to them that's the Holy Land. We have no right to defile their land, us being infidels in their country. That's the way the Jews looked at the occupation of the Roman government. But there was one of these Roman soldiers by the name of Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian Regiment. In other words, he was part of the Roman police force. This is the way the military situation worked in those days. A Roman legion was about six, no, was exactly 6,000 men. But each legion was divided into 10 cohorts of 600 men apiece. Each cohort or regiment, and this was the Italian regiment, had companies of 100 or centuries. And over each century, over each 100 men, uh, presided a centurion. That's what this guy, he was a military officer in the Roman police force or in the Roman army. What is interesting is that though he was a Roman, brought up with Roman culture, brought up with Roman paganism, no doubt, he feared the Lord. He believed in one true God. He was monotheistic. And in that culture, that was pretty strange. There arose a group of people during that time who were Gentiles, who were just sick and tired of believing in the pagan idolatrous system of the world around them. And they became known as proselytes of the gate or God-fearers. They proselyted into the Jewish religion, although they were not allowed to participate in any of the real intimate Jewish activities because they refused to go through the ritual of circumcision. But they'd go to the synagogue, 
They would go to the temple and hang out in the court of the Gentiles. They'd watch some of the ceremonies. They didn't participate. They were just proselytes of the gate. They weren't full proselytes. And this is one of these men. But notice his uh, description in verse 2. He was a devout man, one who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Here we have, at this point, an unbeliever in Jesus Christ who is more devout than many Christians who have Jesus Christ. More practically righteous in a practical sense to his fellow man and in his regular prayer life than many Christians are. I wish many Christians were as devoted as this Jewish proselyte of the gate, a God-fearer, who hadn't yet come into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, he brings up an important point here in his description. That is, it's possible to be very religious and not saved. But how many people equate religion with salvation? Do you know Jesus Christ? Well, I'm very religious. That wasn't my question. Well, I've gone to church all my life. That wasn't the question. Well, I was raised in the church. So what? You can be religious, and as you see here, you cannot come to the knowledge of the truth. You cannot be saved. That's a possibility. There's a lot of people today like Cornelius. They're favorable toward Christianity. In fact, they're very much like him. They're God-fearers. They attend services, but they're afar off. They come and they just kind of want to put their foot in the door and kind of watch from a distance, just peek, observe, go in quickly, go out quickly, not really get involved, not really get involved in their relationship with Christ, not repent of their sins, just become proselytes of the gate. But the difference between Cornelius and many religious people today is that Cornelius knew that his own life of devotion was not enough to save him. He knew that. And God appeared to him and told him that. He was responsible and he lived according to the spiritual light that he had. But God revealed to him that there was more. And he said, send for one Simon, Peter, who's staying at the house of Simon, a tanner. Jesus said something to Nicodemus that has become probably the most famous saying in the New Testament. You must be born again. Not, you know, it would be a good idea, Nick, if you think about, consider, if you've got some time left over, to be born again. He didn't say, hey, Nicodemus, there are many kinds of Christians. There's the born-agains, there's the this, there's the that. You could consider being born again. No, he said, you have to be born again, Nicodemus, or you'll never get to heaven. Who did Jesus say this to? Did he say it to a vile, unrighteous criminal? No, he said it to the highest product of religious Judaism. The people looked at Nicodemus because he was a Pharisee and thought, this guy is one of the leaders of our church, so to speak. If anybody's righteous, it's Nicodemus. Jesus said, Nicodemus, there's more. You must be born again. You need a spiritual birth from above. I found out recently that John Wesley, the famous evangelist, he was the son of a minister. He became a minister. He went to the mission field. And during that time, he admitted that he didn't have a relationship with Christ. And he said it was something like 1743 that he was in London. And he was listening to someone read one of the commentaries of Martin Luther. 
on the book of Romans. And God spoke to his heart about the need for personal commitment to Christ, for repentance of his sins, that religion wasn't enough. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ that night. When I worked at a hospital in Southern California, I had the opportunity of sharing my faith with certain people that came in there. And I remember there was one gal, she was a secretary for the radiology department. She was a very nice girl. She was a very religious person. And we had many conversations and um, I'd always invite her to church and she'd say, no, I'm a very religious person. I have my own church. Great, that's no problem. But then I started sharing more and more about the gospel with her. She was an educated gal. She was born and raised a Catholic and she um, was a very good religious person. But eventually she came to the point where she recognized, I am not saved. I'm sincere in what I believe, but there's a difference between sincerity and saving faith. And this man displayed so many good characteristics, but there was something more. He was hungering for something more and God yet revealed something more to him. You know why? Because good works can't save a person. Religion can't save a person. Good works can't save a person. Now, once you are saved, you should display good works, but you don't do good works so that you can be saved. It's funny how people love to compare themselves with other people. And if you do compare yourself with other people, you always find people worse than you are. But you usually don't think about the other people who are better than you do when you compare yourself with other people. But there are people who are worse than you. And worse than I and worse than anybody. There's always somebody more wretched. But I don't care who you are. When you are seen in the bright white holiness of God, your righteousness is as filthy rags. And you are required to be clothed in His righteousness or you don't stand before God. God will never allow you, afford you, the ability to stand before Him and say, God, I earned my way to heaven. I was a good person all my life. I deserve this. No, you won't. It's only by God's unmerited favor that you will be able to stand before God in eternity or anyone. Look down with me at verse 6. It said, He's lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. I've always loved that verse because it tells me something. That though salvation is a divine work, it's all of God. God uses messengers, channels, people to do His work. God never used angels to preach the gospel. Angels were used as messengers of God to get messages across to God's people, but angels are never used to preach the gospel. Except one exception in the future in the Great Tribulation. An angel will fly through heaven, preach the everlasting gospel to all those who dwell on the earth. But we are given the opportunity to share the gospel. You know, God's method here shows that He uses people to do His work. Now, an angel already came to Him and said, Hey, Cornelius, God's been watching you lately. You're doing pretty good. You're praying a lot. You're giving stuff away to poor people. Why didn't the angel just continue and say, But that's not enough. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who's come to Israel and will give salvation to all people. And here's the plan of salvation. Here's the four spiritual laws. Repeat this after me. Raise your hand. He didn't do that. Instead of telling him the gospel, he said, go get Peter. And this man will do it. 
Because God uses people like you and me to preach the gospel. A lot of times we think, let somebody else share the gospel with these people. I'm not called to do it. Well, sometimes God has you in strategic places specifically there so that you can verbalize your faith so that they might know Jesus Christ. Peter happened to be at a certain place close by and he told his guys, hey, go get Peter. Have him come down. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius, two of his household servants and a devout soldier who waited on him continually, when they had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, I want you to look down as Peter is having this vision. He saw the sheet let down from heaven. And verse 13, a voice came to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. When he heard that, he just about had a heart attack because he was Jewish. And obviously on the sheet were all sorts of foods that were ceremonially unclean for somebody who is Hebrew, who is under the covenant of Judaism, the law to eat. And so he had a very natural response, but it was a perfect contradiction. He said, not so, Lord. Now you can say no, and you can say Lord, but you can't say them together. Because it's a perfect contradiction. Lord is a word that is a title for someone that dominates another. Someone who controls someone else's life. And when you say, you're my Lord. I love you, Lord. You're saying you are absolute ruler. You call the shots in my life. You're the boss. I push away my own agenda, my own game plan, and you put yours in my life and I'll follow that. That's what Lord means. So to say, no, Lord, doesn't make sense. But that was a natural response. Not so, Lord. He said, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common or unclean. What lesson did Peter learn from this? Look ahead in verse 28 when he arrives at his house. And we'll read this all in context. But look, he said, then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. That's the lesson God was trying to get through to the thick skull of Peter. It wasn't just food laws that he was concerned about, but breaking racial barriers. He was showing Peter that, Peter, other people can be loved by me and saved by me besides people who are just like you and think like you. Anyone who will call upon my name. Yeah, but they're common. They're unclean. They're Gentiles. They're not Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. God was doing a new thing. A salvation now gets out to people who are not Jews. For Peter, this is a crash course in grace. Something that Peter didn't know about unmerited, undeserved favor. And God was teaching him that. Remember what we read, you who were here Sunday night in Jeremiah? Jeremiah 31, God predicts what? A new covenant. God said, it won't be like the old covenant of the law. But I will write my law in your hearts. I'll put my law, my tenets, my commandments within your heart. Just like Cornelius was fearing the Lord, being responsible according to the spiritual light that he had, God was revealing more to him. And God wanted to touch him. God wanted to save him. And Peter was saying, those people are common and are unclean. But God was getting through to him the lesson that they're not. The Gospel of John, we are told... The law came by Moses. 
But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The contrast between the two, the law and grace. Under the law, to be saved, you had to keep the commandments. You had to bring sacrifices. You had to go through all of the rituals of circumcision and so forth to be in right covenant relationship with God. The law came by Moses, but grace, unmerited, undeserved favor, came through Jesus Christ. Even people who were not under the same covenant as the Jews. And that's why Paul in Galatians says, the law was a tutor or a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And that's why Paul says in the book of Romans, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone that believes. It's the end of the law. Peter, I'm done with that covenant. I'm writing a new covenant. It's not like the one you were raised with. It's going to be totally different. And you've got to understand it from Peter's perspective. He was blowing his little old Jewish mind at this point. He wasn't used to this. This was new to him. But this is the message God is trying to get across to him. Now look down in verse 17. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius made the inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down, go with them. Nothing doubting, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius, and he said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Now it's one thing to get a commentary about a man's character, like in verse 2, from the Lord, but it's another thing to get a commentary from the people who work for you that matches that. Now these guys worked for him. They said, you know, he's a just man. He's a good man. He really fears God. A lot of people would just say, oh, this guy that I'm working for, he needs to see you. But they had the same testimony that God had that was spoken about in chapter or in uh, verse 2. In verse 23, he invited them in, lodged them, and on the next day Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and his close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. This is the first incident of the veneration of a man or the veneration of Peter in the New Testament. Where people are not at this point worshipping God but ready to worship one of God's servants. He falls down and he worships him. Now Peter doesn't say, yes, that's right. I'm one of the saints. You ought to pray to me. You ought to worship me. Notice his response. And Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I myself am also a man. I love that. Every time in the New Testament that people tried to worship either men or angels, they were forbidden by those people. In Lystra, when Paul and Barnabas are there and a great revival is about to break out, because of a miracle, all of these people come together to worship Barnabas and Paul. They're ready to sacrifice to them. And Barnabas and Paul said, what are you guys doing? 
We are human beings just like you. Don't worship us. Worship God. In Revelation 19, after John sees a vision, he lays down and he worships an angelic being. And even the angelic being says, I forbid you to worship me. You only worship God. Now that should be a lesson to us that we can never venerate one of God's servants. Whether we would call them a saint or an angel, it's forbidden in the Scripture. I was raised in the system where I prayed to certain saints and prayed to certain individuals that I thought would be able to speak to God a little better than... I mean, I had no right to speak to Jesus. After all, He's the Son of God. I couldn't come to God directly, so I'd speak to one of His friends. And they would speak to God on my behalf. That's unscriptural. In the Scripture, when they tried to do that, they were forbidden directly. And that should be a lesson to all of us, folks, that we can never venerate a human being. Be careful not to have Christian gurus. And a lot of Christians have gurus. Their favorite radio preacher. Whatever he says, boy, that's right. Their favorite holy television evangelist. Now you can have doubts about the Bible, but if you doubt what this prophet or this person says, it's forbidden. Thou shalt not worship thy radio or thy television or thy tape recorder. You should only worship the Lord. And so in this little incident, Peter A., he refused to be treated as a god. But secondly, he refused to treat this Gentile as a dog. He said, hey, don't worship me. I myself also am a man. In verse 27, as he talked with them, he went in and he found many who had come together. And he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. Now, that was not a friendly thing to say. He was saying, you know, I'm not supposed to be here. You know that, don't you? I'm Jewish. You're a Gentile. I shouldn't be inside of your house right now. But notice what he says. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection. Oh, really? What did you say, Peter, when that she was let down from heaven? Not so, Lord. No objection, huh? And so I ask you then, for what reason have you sent me? And Cornelius said four days ago while I was fasting until... This hour, at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And he said, Cornelius, your prayers, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. And so I sent to you immediately. You've done very well to come. Now therefore... We are all present before God to hear all things commanded you by God. No preacher could ask for a more attentive audience. Imagine saying that. We are here in the sight of God to hear all things commanded you by God. Boy, that's easy preaching. So Peter opened his mouth. Uh Uh-oh. But notice what he said. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Oh, he's learning the lesson. Good old Peter's coming around here. He said, not so, Lord. And he knew it was forbidden to go into the house of a Gentile because they have spiritual cooties. (laughs) But he's learning the lesson. He says, I know. In truth, I perceive that God shows no personality. If you have an old King James Version, it says no respect of persons. 
which literally means, that little phrase, respective persons or partiality, literally means to raise the face. In other words, to regard a person with favor. Where you'd walk up to him and you'd lift his face and you'd push the other guy's face down. It was a very graphic word to describe showing favor to certain individuals. He's saying God has no favorites. God doesn't have a favorite nation. God doesn't have a favorite class of people, a favorite group of people. All people are in spiritual need and stand before God with the same need to be saved as anyone else. God has no favorites. But in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. In other words, he is saying, a Gentile doesn't have to be a Jew to be saved. He doesn't have to go through that route. It's a whole different plan that God has for him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of who? All. Oh, Peter, you're picking up on it. He's not just Lord of you, Peter. He's Lord of all. That's the lesson that he's catching. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all of Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to judge or to be the judge of the living and the dead. He just preached in a few sentences the whole gospel. Jesus was born. He died in your place for your sins. And he was raised from the dead as the calling card, the proof of who he was. And he will come again and he will judge the world. He shared all that in a few sentences. And here's verse 43, I would say, is the real center point of this chapter, the real pivotal truth of this entire chapter. To him, the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the forgiveness or the remission of sins. Whoever believes will receive the remission of sins. It's by faith. It's not by keeping the works. It's not by eating the right kind of foods. I now understand that anyone, Jew or Gentile, who believes in Him will receive forgiveness of sins. That one verse will cause so many waves in the next several chapters until they have to have a huge board meeting about it in Jerusalem to find out is it by faith or is it by keeping the law that you're saved. Because of that statement, Paul will write many treatises on how a person is accepted by God. The book of Romans, the book of Galatians. How a person has right standing before God. Not because he was religious or went to church or was baptized or circumcised, but because he believes in Jesus Christ. But keep something in mind. The word believe does not mean to acknowledge a fact in your brain. It means that you cling to, adhere to, rely on. That's what the word believe means in Greek. To commit yourself to. I'm trusting that Jesus will save me. I've committed my whole life to Him and to that truth. By faith, you receive the remission of sins. He is the Lord of all, Peter said. The light is finally breaking through. Remember what Peter said on the day of Pentecost? He stood before all the people when they saw the speaking in tongues and they heard the noise. 
And the people said, what is this? And Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, who said in the last days, says the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter quoted the verse without really understanding what that meant. All flesh, not just a select group of people. For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth would come through Jesus Christ. And now Peter is understanding that all people can be saved and that God's Spirit can be poured out on all flesh. And now Peter is understanding the full work of God. Jesus told his disciples, he said, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep. And the disciples were thinking, hey, I like that. I like being your sheep. It's a good relationship. But then Jesus said to them, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also must I bring. I think that Jesus could still utter that today to us. He has other sheep that are not of this fold, that are not white Anglo-Saxons, that are not Hispanics, that are not from Albuquerque, that don't live like we live, that live in other parts of the world. He has other sheep in this city that are not of this fold, and He wants them to come. And He wants all people to be saved. And he wants us to be his emissaries like Peter was to Cornelius, bringing the truth of the gospel. Speaking, verse 44, these words, the Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. I love this. He's breaking the rules again. Before they were baptized and said, I confess Jesus is my Lord, He filled them with the Holy Spirit. It could be that He made a commitment in His heart, we don't know, but certainly before there was any outward sign, and the church always used baptism as that immediate outward sign of salvation. Not that you're saved by it, but that it's one of those things you do to show a display that you are His. But before baptism, they were filled with the Spirit. And there was no laying on of hands. I like that. Well, you have to have the laying on of hands before you be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, they didn't. And these Jewish believers were just blown away. God's breaking out of His box again. We've created this convenient theological box. We'd love God to just stay in it and be predictable. But He didn't do it. Before baptism, no laying on of hands. They started speaking in tongues and noticed that they were worshiping the Lord as they were doing this. It wasn't a message from God. It was a worship. And then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should be not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days and want to let him go. There's a lot of verses in that chapter. Usually Thursday night we take a small section, but we've learned some real important lessons. Number one, everyone is a sinner. That's one of the, that's the first foundational truth of the gospel, is that all men are sinners and are in need. Even religious people, all are sinners. Secondly, it is impossible for good works to secure salvation. Paul said, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by His grace He saved us. You know, I came to a point in my life, I grew up believing that if I really tried hard to do what was right, 
if I tried hard to be a good boy for my mom and dad, if I tried hard to never miss church, if I tried hard to say, now I lay me down to sleep before I went to bed at night, and if I was truly sincere that that's all it took is my good works and my sincerity to get to heaven. And I even believe that it really doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus just as long as you're sincere. What about the Buddhist? What about the Muslim? If they're sincere, that's all it takes to be saved. If you just do what was right and do good works. And you know, again, you can always find somebody worse than you, but in the light of God, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And then we always have to ask ourselves this question. Okay, if we can get to heaven by what is by being good, what does it mean to be good? Because your definition of good and God's definition is probably different. A young man came to Jesus and he said, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, Why do you call me good? There's only one good and that's God. Either Jesus was saying, I'm no good or I am God. Why do you call me good? There is only one good, and that is God. Jesus' definition is good is as good as God. Anything less than that, you failed to miss to make the mark, and you are in need of God's grace. And how many of us would say, I'm good, in the same definition Jesus said, good as God. That's why the Scripture says, all of our good works are filthy rags. They can't get you an audience with God. There's a third lesson, and it comes from what we read Sunday night in Jeremiah 29. He said, and you will seek me, and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I believe that a person, I don't care what country he's in, what tribe he's from, if he doesn't speak our language and we think, how could the gospel get to him? I believe that if a person is living up to the light that he has, and he really, truly wants to find God, find the truth, is seeking after the truth, that God has ways of revealing that truth to him. I've read countless stories, and I've been in foreign countries where I've met people who have been in that situation, truly seeking to find the truth. And if you search for me with all of your heart, God said, you'll find me. And four, here's a lesson that I often think about, and that is we are usually impressed by individuals who have fabulous testimonies of being rotten sinners before they came to know the Lord. The rottener a person was, we go, wow, we love their testimony more. Come here, the Satanist who turned Christian. Oh, i got to hear this. How many people will turn out to hear a very religious, upright, good American citizen all of his life who finally made a commitment to Jesus Christ? We are impressed with the bad people turning good, but not the religious person who they thought in their estimation were good all their life coming to Christ. They're all sinners. They're all the same before God. And all of them need salvation. You say, well, I, I kind of disagree that good works and being sincere isn't enough. Well, God showed him that it wasn't. God said, hey, send for Peter. God didn't say, hey, you know what? You're doing right on. See you later. Keep up the good work. No. You've got to talk to Peter. Peter's got to share the gospel with you. It wasn't enough. And he recognized it wasn't enough. Dwight L. Moody, 
Before he died, in his ministry, he said something interesting. He said, when I was 20, it, it was I'm never until I was 20 years old that I heard a message on salvation in a church. It took me 20 years of going to church before I heard one message on salvation. He said, I was raised in churches that told me that I should just do good, just do good, and that would be enough. And he went on to say, you may as well tell a midget to be a giant as to tell a person how to be good without telling him how. And how do you do it? By believing on him, by committing your life to Jesus Christ. That was something so new to Peter. Even though he'd followed Jesus, even though he had witnessed so much, it was confined to just his people group. But God was breaking out of that and getting the gospel to the world. Let's pray. Lord, it's sometimes tough for us to really key in on the fact and believe that you love people that are unlike us or that you love people that we don't like. But you do, Lord. And you don't want anybody to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You've got a plan for this whole world in every nation. As Peter said, that if a person would believe on you, would come to you, would adhere to you, that you'd save them. And Lord, as I look at Peter's sermon, I see the necessity to stay simple in our presentation of the gospel. To just preach Jesus, born, crucified for our sins, risen from the dead and coming again. Lord, make us obedient servants. I pray that we would not use pious words to get out of doing your will. Like Peter when he said, not so, Lord. It sounded so pious, so good, but it was a cop-out for not doing what you've commanded him to do. And so, Lord, train us to be obedient kids doing what their dad asks them and commands them to do. Lord, more and more, I pray that we would allow you to be the Lord of our lives. More and more, Lord, that our own agenda would be pushed aside and your will would be uppermost. And Lord, thanks for your patience. Thank you that you're committed to our growth. You're committed to our effectiveness. And though we fall so many times, you just, you're there to give us the baton once again. Lord, I pray if any of us are holding on to traditions from our past, if those traditions are conflicting with what your word reveals to be the truth that we would cut them loose. We would not be guilty as the Pharisees were who transgressed the commandment of God because of their tradition. And Father, finally, I pray for those who might be here this evening 
who've never made Jesus their Lord. They have not personally adhered to or committed their life to Him. They've watched from afar, like Cornelius. They're like the proselytes of the gate. They're favorable toward Christianity. But they've never made that decision to step out and follow you. I pray, Lord, that tonight they would just end the fight and they'd follow.